ARPA acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and future. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of ARPA and the National Boards. I'm George Hyde. We're now many months into the global pandemic. This episode is about some of the long-term impacts of COVID-19 and how allied health practitioners are responding. Many people who catch COVID-19 won't become severely ill and will recover relatively quickly, but some people have had long-term problems after recovering from the original infection. Global guidance has been developed to support physiotherapists to manage safe and effective rehabilitation approaches for people living with long COVID. Today, we'll be discussing long COVID, what it is, who is at risk, and what can be done to help those who suffer from it. Our guests today are Scott Willis, National President of the Australian Physiotherapy Association, Associate Professor Dale Edgar, who is leading the longitudinal study on the effects of COVID-19, termed LATER-19, and practitioner member of the Victorian Physiotherapy Board, Dr Paula Harding, who leads the musculoskeletal physiotherapy team at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Scott, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your experience with COVID-19? Thanks, George. Yeah, I'm Scott Willis. I'm National President of the Australian Physiotherapy Association. I'm a practising physiotherapist down here on the northwest coast of, uh, of Tasmania, where we were the first hospital in Australia to be locked down um, due to the COVID outbreak. Um, so we had 235 cases and 13 deaths, um, but I was one of those 235 Tasmanians that were infected um, with COVID and still affecting um, or still having the side effects of, uh, of long COVID as well. I also treat um, and continue to treat um, patients with long COVID, which still affects uh, multiple people here in Tasmania on the northwest coast. And Dale, could you tell us about yourself and your experience with long COVID? Hi, I'm Dale Edgar. I am a senior physio over at Perth, Western Australia. I work at one of the tertiary hospitals called Fiona Stanley Hospital. My interaction with COVID-19 started last year when I was asked to be the site coordinator for the COVID research response and setting up the node of the Isaric clinical characterization trial, which is a global trial. And Paula, could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, uh, my name is Paula Harding. Um, I've been a musculoskeletal physio working at the Alfred for over 17 years. Um, in March 2020, I got the role of the Allied Health Workforce uh, Manager for the response to COVID. Uh, so this was um, putting models of care in place at the Alfred um, to adapt our workforce to meet uh, the needs of the pandemic. Um, similar to Scott, we had a first. We were the first hospital in Victoria to have a COVID outbreak and consequently the first two patients who died of COVID in Victoria were patients on our cancer ward. So very quickly we had to respond and deal with large numbers of staff being furloughed and um, models of care that really protected our patients and our staff um, and helping the um, particularly physio and all of the allied health departments adapt to what was required. Um, I haven't had um, to deal um, clinically with uh, patients with long COVID, um, but I have also been involved from a research perspective, being a member of the Alfred um, Human Research and Ethics Committee, um, seeing the research studies come through um, in regards to COVID and, and being asked to expedite anything COVID-related so we could get that research happening as soon as possible. So particularly in relation to long COVID, there's obviously a lot of work happening in this space. So, um, you know, really important studies that we needed to get um, approved. Scott, can you elaborate on your first-hand experience having had COVID? Yes, I contracted uh, 
uh, COVID-19 back in April last year in 2020. And, um, you know, in the early stages of COVID, it wasn't uh, really a, a smooth process or a smooth journey. So, you know, everyone was learning at that time. So my experience from the other side was quite frustrating um, within that uh, within that journey, being forced in into, um, into isolation, being forced to contact some of my close contacts um, that I'd been treating um, before being diagnosed with COVID. Um, now being in lockdown for up to three weeks, not knowing the side effects, the short-term, long-term effects of, uh, of what COVID was going to uh, deliver, um, and whether this pandemic was going to actually kill my professional standing, um, you know, within within my community, but also my business as well, where um, I'm a private practitioner. Um, but now I'm suffering the the long-term side effects of of COVID, so the long COVID effects. Um, so we've still got those lingering symptoms that are frustrating, but um, I suppose I'm fortunate that I'm still around, I'm still alive. I'm not one of those um, 13 deaths that happened here in um, in Northwest Tasmania. I can still do most of uh, of the physical activity, but it's more the sustained and, um, and extreme physical activity that I have trouble with. I still have uh, a little bit of uh, that concentration, but also, um, um, you know, still be able to do um, most of my activities of, of daily living, but it's more, given me, I suppose, the empathy and the um, and the willingness to assist um, other sufferers of COVID that really uh, makes me um, probably more empathetic. Um, I've got, you know, probably a background of the pathophysiology and the personal experience, the knowledge now to try and assist and help those that are, are still affecting, just like myself, to navigate the system and hopefully um, overcome the effects of, of COVID-19 and the, the long COVID symptoms. Thanks for sharing your experiences with us, Scott. So, Dale, we know what COVID is. Can you explain to us what long COVID is? So there's a very keen focus on the immune response and how that seems to attack the neurological system. The toxicity to uh, on the neural system seems to cause a multitude of symptoms, and uh, these include things like brain fog, memory problems, uh, loss of smell, loss of taste, um, muscle fatigue uh, and general fatigue. Um, on top of a number of other symptoms. But I think long COVID is probably best described as anything, any of those types of symptoms which last more than about four to eight weeks after recovering from the acute signs of COVID-19. Paula, as a physiotherapist, how many people do you see with long COVID and who's most at risk? I've had a small clinical role in the ED where I've very much can um, appreciate the demands um, that COVID brings on um, on our staff, um, particularly with having to work in PPE. I recall treating a, a little old lady who'd come in from a resident, residential aged care place that was a, a hotspot and having to treat her with full COVID precautions. And we had to put a um, above knee plaster on her um, leg fracture and you know, it was a 30-minute procedure and within 30 minutes of being in full PPE, you were just sweating straight through, right through, you know, every piece of clothing you had because of the, you know, the layers of, um, you know, PPE that was required. So it's incredibly exhausting work from a staff perspective to work with these patients um, and it must be incredibly frightening to be a patient in that situation and, and the fear and the unknown um, and not having any family or friend being able to be by your bedside um, when you are diagnosed with COVID and, and need to be admitted. Um, 
So I, I haven't had that opportunity to work directly with these patients, but definitely from a hospital's perspective of understanding what they're going through and what our staff are going through to deal with COVID. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's been quite a quite an experience that I think, you know, many staff will take quite a while and patients to really recover from. Scott, do you have anything to add to what Paula said? Yeah, it's an interesting point because, um, you know, from the cohort that um, that I've been treating here on the northwest coast of Tasmania, it's been a, a very wide spectrum of, um, of backgrounds of, um, you know, even um, gender as well. You know, we've had pretty much a, an equal balance, uh, you know, the, the age group between, you know, somewhere between the 35 to, to 60-year-olds. Um, um, you know, there's there's been a, a huge variation in what their, their pre-comorbidities were, um, in terms of, you know, did they have any type of cardiovascular, diabetics or respiratory conditions pre-infection? Um, there's been a huge spectrum of that. So there's been nothing really consistent that, um, that I've seen um, here. So it's just been a, a real eye-opener of, um, of just unable to actually predict who will get it um, and what the effects will be as well. So it's a really hard um, question to answer from a policy point of view and even from a preventative point of view and a predictive point of view because of such the wide spectrum of, of um, the disease process but also the symptoms and, um, and outcomes. Dale, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, look, I'd like to pick up on Paula's point about fear. I think that there was certainly in our environment, obviously in Western Australia we've had very few cases, um, a small number of deaths and very few cases in uh, comparison to anywhere else in Australia and potentially the world. Um, but one of the things I guess that I really noticed when we were setting up uh, our services, our clinical services, and also when I was particularly involved in setting up a, a research project in the environment, the fear actually almost paralysed some staff um, from acting in such a way that um, allowed us to be the professionals that we need to be when we're treating patients who you know have these challenging conditions. Certainly, it's not new to have challenging conditions to actually, you know, having, including having to wear PPE, et cetera, um, and, and work in those conditions. But I think the problem that we had with COVID is one, um, there was such a, a hysteria around the uh, infectivity of the disease even early on and the fact that we couldn't necessarily identify people who had the disease because they were infectious before they were um, symptomatic. And so that really put uh, a fear in certainly the clinical community as well as the uh, general community and such that, you know, everyone was so uh, concerned about getting the disease because what, at that time in sort of February, March, April last year, you know, people didn't know what the outcomes were going to be even acutely, let alone long and, and, and then the long COVID evolved from that. Um, so I think... It was, a, it was a really interesting time to try and uh, deal with as a physio to, to deal with the uh, almost constantly changing infection control rules. Um, you know, the, there was, I wouldn't say a lack of consistency, but there was an absolute, um, you know, you had to be very focused on what was actually coming out from the authorities because it changed almost on a daily basis and we kept trying to uh, improve our use of PPE and protect ourselves because we knew that if, you know, this pandemic got hold 
um, then we would have a workforce issue. And obviously Paul has alluded to that as well. So it was a really challenging time in that regard. And, you know, now I think we're only just starting to scratch the surface of what it might mean to have to set up clinical services for long COVID. Scott, if I could go back to what you were saying about how long COVID affects different communities, what do you think it reveals about existing inequalities in society? Yeah, look, I, I think, um, you know, Dale's touched on as well. And just that um, first access to um, PPE, I think, um, you know, I know um, some third world countries that have been having, you know, struggling even um, getting some PPE. So that protection of, uh, of clinical staff, but also, um, you know, any visitors or um, or or the consumer uh, visiting um, any facility. So I think um, that's number one, but also um, just the up-to-date research uh, management um, of, of COVID and long COVID as well. I think um, still there's um, there's significant gaps within um, you know some of the uh, third world countries, but also for an example here in Tasmania, I think you know we're a small community impacted hugely. Um, it was the hospital staff that got um, impacted. So um, you know from a staff point of view and and um, and retention point of view, um, we're struggling to actually um, maintain that staffing level because there's quite a few clinical staff still off work um, because of, uh, of the long, long COVID um, symptoms that they are experiencing. So, you know, I think um, from an inequality point of view, um, from a, a rural area um, and things like that, just that access to um, up-to-date research, the knowledge of the medical professionals within, you know, primary health care um, to deliver appropriate care um, can sometimes be quite a significant gap in um, in not just third world countries, but even within Australia. And Dale? I think that the pandemic forced us into uh, a mode where we had to provide as much service as we could remotely. And obviously telehealth was the you know, I guess an obvious solution there, but I think the pendulum has obviously swung a long way uh, over towards telehealth because um, yeah, we had to do it. But now the pendulum is coming back where we're starting to try and shake down what is effective and what's not so effective in, in terms of telehealth. And I, and I guess I'm, I'm still myself in a quandary as to, you know, where does physio fit in with this? Because physio is a hands-on profession. And uh, I think if we're going to be, you know, we get a long way with education, let's put it that way. We know, we know that there's a, a, a significant component of our efficacy relates to our ability to educate patients. Um, and consumers in, you know, whatever it is that we're trying to get them to use as adjuncts to our treatments. But the fact is, uh, you know, in my view, and maybe I'm, I'm a little bit old school in this, we have a, a significant hands-on component and you can't emulate that in telehealth. And so physiotherapy, you know, one thing that really I guess was a challenge for me it was that physiotherapists were not considered essential uh, health providers um, in certain circumstances and and I really struggled with that because you know we can't do our job without putting our hands on patients as a general rule um, and you know therefore you know we're, we're in a situation where our profession is potentially negatively viewed because we're you know if we flipped to telehealth and we had to stay in that mode for significant amounts of time and not able to do what what makes us you know um, the more effective practitioners that we are I think um, you know the pandemic has potentially been damaging for us as a profession in that re in that regard 
And uh, having said that, though, I think that there's lots of positives in, in us being able to provide more of our services via telehealth and reach more people, while there's a sector of people that is that are challenged by technology and, you know, and, and accessing telehealth, I think that we're probably going to gain more by being able to access people uh, remotely um, with the caveat that, you know, we still have to work out how we're going to do this hands-on bit. So it's a, it's a real challenge. I, I think on balance, I think telehealth and, and our reliance on telehealth will um, be a, a positive, but there's certainly some significant challenges with uh, that mode of treatment for physiotherapists. So, Scott, from a physiotherapist's perspective, what do you think future treatment for long COVID might look like? I think, um, you know, treatment for long COVID, I think, um, you know, when, when COVID first uh, first happened, it was going to be you're infected, you get over it, you get well. Um, that's not the case. I think, you know, we've got this, um, you know, from a, a sickness to um to our wellness, there's this illness in in the um, in the middle of it as well, and I think that's going to put quite a lot of um, extra um, stress onto the current um, health system as well. Um, you know, we've got the the normal business as usual within the health system, but then you've got this long COVID um, on top of that as well. So I think it's going to um, affect the communities into the future because we're going to have to um, be able to provide um, you know the an effective and efficient treatment and management of, of these long COVID symptoms. And um, I can't see it ending in the in the near future. It will continue on. Um, who knows for how long? Who knows um, you know, if it will burn out like um, like other conditions or it will continue for the rest of the uh, of the life of the of the consumer that's got long COVID. So I think it's going to um, really impact on on the health system quite significantly on top of the business as usual, and especially in in areas such as um, here in Tasmania where. Um, resources are quite scarce to start with and we've got a, a large comorbidity um, cohort um, a low socioeconomic um, and um, and probably a, a huge aging population so you know I think we've got to be efficient we've got to be effective um, and we've got to come up with um, some really strategies and management processes that um, that can be rolled out um, quite easily. And um, that's where I think physiotherapy can be quite a, an adjunct to um, to that to, to really help with the long COVID recovery. Paula, what can be done to help people with long COVID and what's the role of the physiotherapist here? Yeah, look, I think what's, you know, been highlighted is how unpredictable the symptoms are and how many different organs can be impacted and how many different, um, you know, symptoms an individual might experience and how much that will vary from person to person. And I think where, you know... Um, where physio is placed is that we're very used to tailoring treatments that match the individual needs of our patients. Um, you know, regardless of um, the comorbidities they might have had pre-existing, regardless of, of, you know, the conditions they present with, um, it is very much a profession where we do tailor what's required to the needs of the individuals and, and clinically reason through what the problems are. Um, importantly too, I think we also have this skill set where we do um, differentiate diagnose. So be able to pick through the different diagnoses to work out well what's what's relating to COVID and, and is this something else that might be um, you know a new presentation that's not COVID related. Um, you know some of the long COVID patients talk about having chest pains and and um, shortness of breath and and that can be other symptoms, other conditions that are presenting that way as well. So being able to work through that and make sure these patients are accessing the right care is really important too. So that if they are developing 
you know, symptoms that might be indicative of a different diagnosis not related to COVID that we can point them in the right direction to get that managed. And, and if it is something like chest pain, then that needs to be managed very acutely and, um, you know, um, efficiently by, you know, our, our medical colleagues. So I think it really, um, you know, physio has a really unique opportunity here to offer something to patients where they really will get that tailored um, and individualised treatment that really enables them to, you know, get that return to their mobility, get that return to the activities they want to be doing um, to help them pace through, you know, um, what they need to do, knowing that, you know, fatigue is a really big part of this um, and that it has to be um, monitored and patients need to have the tools to be able to um, assess how they're going and, and make sure that's structured in a way that actually doesn't give them any setbacks, that they don't actually do too much and then they, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Um, and to support them along that journey with whatever tools it might be um, that enables them to meet their goals that are, you know, the things that are important to them, um, which might be very unique from one patient to the next. So I think we're very much used to doing that. And I think that's where we can really offer something to the um, patients with long COVID that um, enables them to really fulfil that potential and help them work through this. Thanks, Paula. Dale, I wonder, does what Paula said ring true to your findings and research at the Later 19 project? Yeah, bang on, George. Uh, my experience is obviously um, that we haven't treated very many, or I haven't specifically in the group that I'm working with in Later 19, haven't treated many acute patients, um, but we followed up over uh, 150 COVID positive and in the order of 200 um, matched COVID negative patients. Something that we need to consider is the outpatient. So in that group of 150 patients that we're following up, there's about 100 or so uh, who were uh, 110 or so who were outpatients. In other words, they had COVID-19 but were not sick enough to end up in hospital. We saw fatigue levels um, at about 30%. We saw joint pain at about 30%. So these are, you know, um, the number of patients who complained of these significant um, issues. Muscle aches at about 25%, shortness of breath at, at about 30% of those patients who were um, COVID positive, but not sick enough to be in hospital. Now, when we fast forward to about seven or eight months, which was our next time point, what we're seeing is that fatigue went from 30% up to about 40% in that group. So fatigue is actually an increasing symptom. Um, and then joint pain dropped about 10%. It went down to about 20% of those patients. Muscle aches went down to about 15% and shortness of breath went down to about 15%. Paula, how do you think the pandemic will shape the future of health and care services? And how can we future-proof the profession to ensure that practitioners can support patients in long-term rehabilitation from conditions like long COVID? I think there's 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 um you know numerous ways like um you know in the acute setting um you know I can speak about how our physios have been really key members in the ICU um, units or across the hospital um, and so for instance when the Alfred had numerous patients in ICU we extended our physio hours um, to be pretty much. Um, from very early on the morning to late in the evening to assist with the, the prone turning that was required of patients who were ventilated. So this was um, a, a, probably one of the few treatments they had available for patients in ICU where they would position them on their tummy. Um, and just to do that uh, on a patient who's attached to a ventilator takes up to six people. 
So our physios were a really key part of the prone turning teams in ICU and had a real presence there um, to support the, the medical and nursing workforce. So, you know, I think that um, profile of what physios can do in the very acute setting um, has definitely sort of been um, increased um, during the pandemic and I hope it will continue on um, into the future as well because there's some very highly skilled clinicians in that, you know, acute um, setting that have really contributed to the care of COVID patients. Scott? I agree with Paula that um, the short-term upskilling of, of physiotherapists was paramount in ICU training. So the Australian Physiotherapy Association um, were commissioned by New South Wales Health to um, to upskill those physiotherapists. Over 5,000 of them um, were upskilled just in, in preparation for possibly an influx of, um, of ICU patients coming, coming in through to the COVID um, acute um, infection rates. So um, I think it really demonstrates that physiotherapy is quite a, um, a versatile and, and agile profession um, and we can, we have got the baseline skills and sometimes we can um, upskill that uh, to to in preparation for any type of pandemic that, are, that approaches. I think as Dale said earlier as well, I think um, us being um, recognised as an essential service deliverer as well, um, the, the Australian Physiotherapy Association has done a huge amount of work in, in um, advocating to um, all forms of government from federal to state to local to ensure that uh, physiotherapy is classified as an essential service. And, um, you know, I think that's not going to be just for the pandemic, but it's going to be very important in policy development um, longer than, than um, the pandemic or any future pandemics, but also in, in policy development and government relations as well. And the third and last thing, I think um, it really demonstrates that um, physiotherapy has got the, the skill um, to um, be part of that multidisciplinary um, you know, care provision for both physical but also mental um, health um, as well. And I don't think we can actually separate the physical and mental health um, in different silos. It's got to be as one. And as Dale said, um, you know, that that real pacing um, in, in controlling that fatigue is going to be a huge factor in, in long COVID moving forwards as well. And I think physiotherapy as a profession can really demonstrate its worth within this area. Thanks, Scott. And Dale, anything to add? I think from my point of view, the primary thing that I would suggest has been flagged with this pandemic is that it is a call to arms and a reminder um, that we need to have systematic outcome measurement. Um, if we are to understand what are the true outcomes of our rehabilitation input and our physiotherapy input and be able to improve our services and design our services for the new uh, contemporary health uh, or future health services that we know are going to evolve out of this pandemic era. That wraps up our conversation on long COVID for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Scott Willis, Dale Edgar and Paula Harding uh, for making the time to come on to Taking Care to discuss a topic that I'm sure will be of great interest to our listeners. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciated the uh, opportunity to speak today and it's been fantastic to speak alongside giants like Paula and Scott. Thank you very much, George. Thanks, George, for having me today and happy World Physical Therapy Day to everyone. Thanks for listening to Taking Care. If you've enjoyed this discussion, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe to Taking Care wherever you download your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. We love receiving feedback, so if you have any comments about today's episode or ideas for future episodes, please send them through to communications at arpra.gov.au. Thanks and take care.